This episode of AHLA Speaking of Health Law is brought to you by AHLA members and donors like you. For more information, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org. Welcome. I'm Delphine O'Rourke, partner with Goodwin and lead of our women's health and wellness industry practice. And it is a privilege to welcome Dr. Somi Javid to our podcast today. Dr. Javid is a leading women's health expert. She is a board certified OBGYN and is a thought leader and nationally known, internationally known, uh, because patients come to her from around the world uh, and for women's health generally with a focus on menopause and sexual wellness. So it is a real pleasure to welcome Dr. Javid and have the opportunity to discuss the impact of Dobbs, our post-row world, on providers who are not only treating patients day to day, but also have a macro perspective on the future of women's health. So thank you, Dr. Javid. It'd be great for listeners if you could just share a little bit more about the work that you're doing and that HerMD is doing. You are the founder of HerMD and it is expanding um, uh, dramatically and serving women all over the country. So um, it would be great to hear more. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm always so excited, Delphine, when you and I get to chat. And so as Delphine mentioned, I'm a practicing OBGYN. My name is Somi Javade. I have been practicing for 20 years. Um, I started a practice in Cincinnati, Ohio called HerMD. And it was focused on uh, sexual health and menopause, but also everything um, bread and butter gynecology. We were started with the mission of empowerment, education, and advocacy, and really wanted to subspecialize in menopause and sexual health care. I had witnessed for years um, women repeatedly being dismissed at the hands of their healthcare providers and being lost in the greater um, hospital systems. And I truly wanted to create a safe space where women would feel empowered, feel visible, and be partners um, in their healthcare um, decisions. And so you're right. We successfully went through a Series A fundraise, um, and we are now expanding our footprint beyond our two existing clinics in Ohio and Kentucky into Indiana and Nashville and New Jersey and California and many more states to come. Let's talk about the unanticipated impacts. There's been a tremendous amount of coverage on how is it going to, how how is the um, Supreme Court decision and the triggering laws, the laws and restrictive abortion laws are going to impact abortion providers, both in, in person and medicated abortion. Let's talk about women's health beyond, you know, and, and whether it's contraceptives or IUDs or just a chilling effect on women's willingness to access primary care. Love to hear it from you as a provider in the women's health space, who's also a thought leader nationally and globally. I was so shocked, um, you know, about all of the unknown um, complications, outcomes, and things that are occurring um, because of Dobbs and what happened. Uh, I think that things were definitely not thought through. Um, and I think we're experiencing, you know, the full fallout. And so for us at HerMD, 
you know, we don't perform medical or surgical abortions, but we definitely provide contraceptive care. And just starting there, Delphine, uh, I've seen it on social media. I've heard from patients that um, pharmacists are sometimes reluctant to fill even regular birth control. Um, and, uh, and then also, you know, there's a concern about plan B and confusion about, is it plan C? And so, you know, plan B is what everyone knows is the morning after pill. It has the same active ingredient in any, as any of the IUDs that contain medicine. Um, and so, you know, some States, I know we're targeting even plan B and plan B primarily works, um, the same way that oral contraceptive does by stopping, um, ovulation. Now it does also inhibit implantation. It depends on, you know, where it's taken in the cycle. And so I think that was the great debate that I wasn't expecting, you know, everyone being able to define when life begins, whether it's at the moment of you know, conception where sperm and egg meet or whether it's implantation and then trying to take the stance that, well, anything that stops implantation is therefore not birth control, but an abortifacient. And, you know, um, that's not true medically. Um, and, you know, I know that some states were talking about Ella and Ella is another, um, type of plan B it's a, um, an emergency contraception option. That's how we talk about it. Now, very different from plan C, which is a combination of two medications, which does lead to a medical termination. Um, you know, and think I think the fallout aside from oral contraceptive and plan B, um, I was shocked, you know, that I saw two legislators um, debating about IUDs and whether they are abortifacients. Definitely, it was an old fashioned way to perform an abortion when you place an IUD in a pregnant uterus, but IUDs that are um, containing hormone work in a multitude of different ways. They stun sperm, they thin the uterine lining, they stop the fallopian tube from working as a conduit and bringing egg and sperm together. They do sometimes stop ovulation, so no different than an oral birth control pill. Um, so I was shocked about that. I was shocked when my colleagues were reaching out to me and talking to me about the fact that they were waiting for uh, women who had ectopic pregnancies. So a pregnancy, right, that is not within uh, the uterine cavity that may be sitting on an ovary or a fallopian tube or in the abdomen, that they were waiting. So these are not viable, right, Delphine? They're, they are not viable. They are actually the leading cause of maternal mortality in this country. And so we are risking a living, breathing human being because some hospitals were so concerned about Dobbs and what happened and the legal implications, or they didn't understand. Delphine, we're not lawyers. And so they were told that until the patient becomes medically unstable, you are not going to operate on this ectopic pregnancy of hers. And all of a sudden you're taking, you know, minimal risk of surgery and creating a much greater risk for the patient. And the poor provider is there sitting thinking, I can't deliver the care I want to, also worrying about malpractice. And so you can imagine the conundrum that this has put a lot of physicians, surgeons, anesthesiologists in. Um, and then one more thing at our own practice, you know, there's a drug called mesoprostol. It's used for stomach ulcers. It's used to induce labor. We use it to make IUD insertion more comfortable. We had pharmacists refusing to fill it um, and asking our patients why they were getting it. 
And so we've had to change operationally with our patient's permission. And we actually have to put on the prescription that the patient is getting an IUD. Um, and so it's it's pretty insane, uh, the things that are going on on the day-to-day basis in the gynecology world. So there's a lot there that I'd love to unpack because our audience are mostly lawyers. And this is where we have an opportunity to support providers, to support patients, to support the national dialogue in explaining what the laws require, at least to the extent that we can, because there's there's still a lot of confusion and vagueness. Um, because what I'm hearing is that providers, whether it's the pharmacist, whether it's the physicians, um, and I imagine there are many other providers in the health system who are left to interpret what the law may be. And when I say the law, it's it's really, it's not just one law, it's a Supreme Court decision and then every triggering state. And again, not that does it doesn't even end there. What is the interplay between between state regulations? I mean, you brought up the issue of conception. Um, even how is conception defined? You use the term viability, which is a medical term that is no longer central to the legal conversation. So it's like you are you in a global sense are in a position now, put into a position where you have to interpret the law to make your medical decisions. And what I'm also hearing, and I've heard from many others, is that there is a fear, understandably, it can be medical malpractice, or it could be criminal exposure, uh, the Texas that has a you know long arm, there's a private right of action, where it could be an individual who's pulling you into a lawsuit or based on this aiding and abetting concept. Um, so from a provider, what would be helpful? What could we do, whether it's as an organization or for the public, or maybe it's the, you know, medical associations to help providers? What can we all do, particularly those of us who work with health systems and physicians, to help you and your colleagues navigate all of this? I think breaking down legalese into everyday prose so that it's digestible and understandable, much akin to when a physician breaks down a medical consent for a patient, you know, we'll use an anatomically correct um, nomenclature, but we will explain things to them much differently than we would a colleague. And so when I'm speaking to lawyers and legal teams, I always ask them, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer. You, you need to please break this down for me um, so that I can understand. And so I think, you know, there's so much gray for us. Uh, we're asking you to get rid of the gray <laughs> and make it as black and white as you can, given, you know, the laws in those individual states so that we're not sitting there waiting to operate on a patient and wait for them to actively start dying, that we are able to take care of um, ectopic pregnancies, that our patients can get the medications that they need and deserve, um, and that they're not turned away. And I think the other thing that would really help is helping physicians and providers understand their rights. If we feel like someone's life is in um, peril, you know, can we act sooner or are, are we obligated to wait for the hospital legal team or legal decisions? Um, so I think those two things, breaking it down and then making it clear as to what we have autonomy over when uh, regarding medical decision making for our patients. 
there's so much there that's practical, that's actionable, whether those are conversations with the medical staff, whether it's the MEC that has those conversations, whether it's the president, there's so many different formats. But to your point, to get it down to really granular level, this is what you can do. This is what you can't do. If you have questions, how long do you have to wait? You know, an issue that I've been hearing is physicians who are maybe credentialed or who are credentialed in two states and are concerned that if they perform, um, you know, let's use the adoptive pregnancy example, if it is legal in one state where they are credentialed and practicing, but illegal in another state, um, what's their exposure? Could they lose their medical license in the restrictive state? Do they have an obligation to report? Could they impact um, their licensure and ability to practice in the less restrictive states? I mean, there's so many issues that really hit, um, you know, really at the heart of physicians' um, ability to, to practice medicine. And, you know, we're also seeing, you know, there's Texas representatives who, who are targeting a, a law firm in Texas. So, um, as well as Lyft, you know, and saying that they were, um, that their support for employees uh, was a, I think it was egregious violation, don't quote me on that one, of their shareholder responsibilities. So these attacks on, again, law firms, physicians, large corporations are are creating widespread fear. Are, do you, are you hearing your colleagues or just within your network conversations about insurance coverage? That's a question that I've been getting. Is there a way to ensure against some of um, some of the risk associated that could be beyond medical malpractice. I haven't heard any pushback about whether or not um, patients, colleagues, or providers are worried about insurance coverage um, regarding some of these issues. I definitely have, though, engaged with like uh, a company called um, Favor. They're one of the largest online uh, retailers of oral contraceptive plan B because we are preparing for problems with accessibility and then cost if it's not covered. Um, And so what they companies like Favor have done have made it very accessible, but also have negotiated really, really low rates, even self-pay rates for these medications so that if something does happen with coverage, that patients will likely still be able to afford their medications. And so I know that practices like mine that uh, practice across multiple states, you know, as telehealth is uh, more and more popular, um, we're finding ways to ensure that our patients will not um, meet any further barriers um, than need be. What about supply chain? I mean, we've heard about, you know, immediate rush on contraceptives, um, on on other prescriptions. Do you have concern? We're putting, separating the issue of whether or not you can access contraceptives, but supply chain concerns. Are you hearing anything about those? And do you have those concerns? You know, you just can't get, you know, again, can't get contraceptives um, when they're necessary for treatment of uterine fibroids because they're just not manufactured. No, I'm very worried about a lot of the medications. Um, we, uh, you know, the company I mentioned, Favor, who um, deliver Plan B and contraceptives, they saw a 5,000% increase in demand for their services right after this announcement was made. Um, we um, are seeing a tampon shortage as well um, in regards to this. 
So yeah, for sure. I think we're going to see issues um, with uh, pharmaceuticals, with products, specifically in the female healthcare space. Um, I'm very concerned about that. I know that people were buying up things. Uh, people are trying to keep their cycles um, very private. I think we're going to be in trouble with pregnancy tests. I can see a lot of issues um, with supplies and um, women not being able to have access to what they need. A lot there, incredibly valuable. Um, we've been talking about women's health, gynecology health. It, there's an impact beyond um, what, it, you know, part of what we're already seeing data around is women's reluctance to go to their primary care physician, for example, um, out of just, you know, a general concern. No one's quite clear what's happening with their, with their information. And that could be, you know, a primary care exam or an annual exam where you also get a mammogram or where cancers could be detected or, and because of a concern, particularly among um, communities of that, you know, historic mistrust of the healthcare system, if you're concerned that your physician is now going to hand over, um, rightly or wrongly the concern, but if you hand over your medical information to law enforcement, that's having a chilling effect on women accessing care overall for a variety of different conditions. What, what's your reaction to that? It makes me so angry for patients that they have to live in fear and it may prevent them from, let's say, getting a mammogram because no one's going to proceed with the mammogram unless you have a patient declare they're not pregnant, right? You're not going to take them in for unnecessary radiation. And so I have had so many patients share with me that other than their gynecology office, that they're not going to be offering up any information about their menstruation or, you know, their sexuality. And the thing for me too, as a gynecologist, Delphine, um, menstruation is another vital sign. You know, a healthy patient's menstruate, uh, menstruation can give us so much information about what's going on in the body. And if um, patients are afraid to share this knowledge and this information, um, rightfully so, right? They're scared. They don't understand. Um, then it's going to lead to some delays in care, potentially diagnosis and some barriers as well. Um, so it, 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 really, number one, as a healthcare provider, angers me. But um, as a woman, it infuriates me. As a health system, we've been moving aggressively towards preventive care, you know, for, for so many different reasons. Um, and, and this seems like the unintended consequence is a move away from preventive care. And we're also seeing some other attacks on the ACA and coverage of preventive care for both men and women. And this is interesting, it's coming at a time when in, in 2022, we saw un unprecedented investment in the women's health and wellness industry, whether it was digital apps or direct services, um, counseling, telehealth, psychiatry, just across the board. Uh, women control, you know, I say they're chief medical officers and chief financial officers of the home making decisions, medical decisions, not just for themselves, but for their family members, their kids, their significant others, their parents, etc., uh, as well as driving consumer decision making. So and in the in the health community, we've always known that labor and delivery was one of the key 
times when women start engaging with the with the uh, health system and then developing a relationship with that health system for their entire lives. Um, so it's interesting that this decision is coming down at the same time that we're seeing such an explosion of you know growth and solutions and demands made by women who are saying, I don't want the care that I've received. I I want it delivered to me differently. I want it like many other groups saying, you know, we talk about putting the patient at the center. Um, and, and historically, that hasn't always been the case. Um, and also seeing a trend, and love to hear about this from you on this point, is, um, and I see it from the founder perspective, I see it from what investors are looking at, is women saying, the fact that it impacts the quality of my life is sufficient to require a solution. The standard of, well, menopause isn't gonna kill you is no longer the consumer standard. And I mean, you're such a trailblazer in this area. You know, talk to us about the growth in the menopause market and how health systems can really partner with innovators and, and providers like yours who have the specialization, because that's one of our barriers. We don't have enough providers who are trained in menopause um, to really move the needle on women's health. Yeah, you know, um, I've done a lot of consulting. I sit on a lot of uh, pharmaceutical um, and product advisory boards. I teach physicians. I talk to patients. And, you know, it drives me insane when an answer to why do we not have funding or why are women still underrepresented in, in every single clinical trial or why are people um, not giving um, femtech and female innovators enough money? Like, yes, last year was great. It was record breaking. Um, but it's it's just the tip of the iceberg of what's required. Um, because unfortunately, and I'm not saying, I'm going to say this right now, men deserve all the medical care, all the funding, all the research they have. All I want is equal access for women, for the same clinical trials, for the same funding, for the same options, um, because for far too long, there's been too great of a gender disparity. And this you know, notion that if it's not going to kill her, then we don't have to investigate it or study it or fund it. And it's crazy because half the world's population, if they're lucky enough to live long enough, are going to go through menopause. And menopause affects women from head to toe, whether you're talking about cognitive decline and not being able to um, you know, function in the workspace, right when they're getting to the C-suite or maybe the top of their career. Like we, you and I both saw the articles and the headlines last year, 900,000 women left the workforce in the UK due to undiagnosed or untreated menopausal symptoms. You know, there's change in sex drive. There are problems with incontinence. I've had patients thought they would have to leave the workspace because they were dealing with incontinence and they were embarrassed or they were having hot flashes. I've had news anchors come to me and say they're, they're sweating profusely on TV and they don't want to live this way anymore. And so um, menopause is so much more than a hot flash. It impedes cognitive ability. It leads to anxiety and depression. It can cause great problems in a relationship because there can be loss of intimacy and loss of desire. It can negatively impact self-confidence. It can lead to weight gain and changes in skin and joint pain and can really inhibit 
you know, a woman's ability to enjoy her family, to work, to have a, a satisfying relationship. And as you mentioned, that women are the CEOs of their families, they are the decision makers. And so to say, yeah, you know, maybe for the next 35 years, you know, because life expectancies are getting longer in this country, you're just supposed to live this way. And so, you know, what hospital systems and um, employers um, can benefit from it with, a, you know, adopting menopause care or menopause solutions or partnering with a company like HerMD is number one education, right? Answering all those questions for those patients. Um, number two, providing them with menopause experts. Um, less than 20% of OBGYNs are comfortable even discussing menopause. Um, less than 30% of us actually get formal training in this area. That's crazy to me. Um, and the third thing is, um, and talking to a lot of hospital systems, found out that a lot of the schedules are filled with pregnant patients because they need to be seen on such a frequent cadence. And so a lot of times their menopause patients or their GYN patients wait 30, 60, 90 days to get on the schedule. And because of telehealth and because we don't see pregnant patients, we're able to take on a very high volume of patients per provider, which is very different because our schedules aren't filled with those weekly OB appointments. So we're usually able to get a patient in within um, two to three days. And so you don't have lost work time. You don't have undue suffering. You have improved um, quality of life and patients feel educated and empowered um, about their bodies and are understanding that they don't just have to grin and bear it. So we're also seeing that this isn't just about healthcare. I mean, when we talk about the employer conversation, then it's every employer um, who has a population or has a, of, of employees who, who are experiencing not just menopause, but perimenopause, postmenopause. The, a lot of people don't appreciate that perimenopause can, um, you know, begin in your 20s and your 30s. So you're really looking at your entire workforce. And you mentioned the UK, which is far ahead of us in their in their policies and practices. And there are very significant international, multinational companies in the UK that now have menopause benefits for their employees. And I very much hope that that's the direction that employers in the US will go towards recognizing that if you wanna have uh, gender equity or come close to gender equity in the workforce, you need to, to protect and address the underlying health issues. Uh, the other aspect, which is the flip, I mean, we, you mentioned health equity, we need gender equity. Um, we know that, you know, whether it's abortion or um, a lot of the inequities, when you add a racial component to it, women are, again, disproportionately impacted and women um, who are black and brown, um, you know, it becomes the, the, the aggregated impact becomes so acute that it can be measured in life expectancy. It can be measured in, um, you know, heart health, et cetera. Talk to us about that, because I think that's part of the conversation that is sometimes difficult to have and say, whether it's Dobbs or lack of research or lack of funding, once again, it's women of color who are going to yeah, be Yeah, you know, hardest. so Delphine, talk about pulling at heartstrings. So you know that I went into um, women's health care because I nearly lost um, my mother at the age of 45. Um, so I am, you've probably guessed from my name, um, I'm 
not uh, Caucasian. I'm a minority. Uh, obviously, my mother is as well. My mom's Pakistani. And, um, you know, she was repeatedly dismissed at the hands of her healthcare providers. And at 45 years old, it nearly cost her her life. She had an abnormal EKG and um, kept being told, well, women's EKGs look different, or she was patted on the head and told, you know, maybe she needs to cut back on her caffeine intake. And, you know, she had shared with them that her mother had died at 50, that she had lost a sister in her 40s due to cardiovascular disease. And, and science and data at the time just could not explain why a thin, non-smoking 45-year-old woman would ever present with four vessel disease. You know, she ended up finally getting um, diagnosed and treated and is alive to this day. Um, but there was a very eye-opening study that women are much more likely to die from their cardiovascular disease um, due to dismissals at the hands of their healthcare providers. And when you add those metrics of being a minority woman, uh, it's why, you know, fibroids, for example, very passionate about my fibroid uh, patients in the work. I, I have partnered with an advocacy group called the White Dress Project. And, you know, for years, fibroids affect 90% uh, of um, Black women by the time they reach the age of 50. And so disproportionately affect minority women. And for years, we saw very little progress with innovation, minimally invasive treatment options, medications, research, funding, um, because you heard things like, well, no one's going to die from fibroids. Well, you actually can if you become so profoundly anemic. Um, but what was so eye-opening to me was listening to stories um, of women losing their relationships because, you know, fibroids can lead to infertility, uh, horrific pain. Uh, so they don't want to engage in intimacy, anemia, repeated transfusions. Um, so fibroids um, are just one example and the lack of innovation in the space of how we are creating even a, more barriers to care um, for minority women. You combine that with provider bias, lack of funding, underrepresentation, um, with decision making uh, and in clinical trials, and it's a disaster in the making. So I'll add one more layer, which is reimbursement or paying. You know, for for some of the treatments out there, they are you know cash pay, and some women are able to pay for them. Some insurance covers certain treatments, but when you look overall at reimbursement for women's health. Um, again, an area for opportunity, um, whether it's Medicaid or Medicare or private insurers, give us your perspective and what you think would be really impactful, again, um, to move the needle on access. Because you can have great care um, available, but if you can't pay for it, we know we know the cycle. And again, it, it disproportionately impacts the same communities over and over. And, you know, we, this could be linked to a conversation around maternal health outcomes in the U.S., uh, both maternal deaths and, and morbidity. And we see the same cycles, you know, the same black women are three times as likely to die. Um, Latina mothers, similar, similar rates. How do we break this cycle overall, not just about, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's along the continuum and get more reimbursement. Um, shift possibly reimbursement from from other areas 
I mean, you're in it. What would be your recommendation? We might have members in this audience who are part of the organizations who who look at CPT codes and other reimbursement structures. So I think the first thing that needs to change, because you got a nerve there too, Delphine, because I'm in it right now with insurance companies. And I've explained to you how long we spend with our patients and our care delivery model and um, our rates of reimbursement are not great when you compare them just to national average. And, you know, it's because I started as an individual owner and they're, they insurance companies have way too much control over what they can reimburse. And so for the same surgery or the same visit, it can be astronomically different what they pay someone. And so that really then um, deteriorates our healthcare system because the providers who are on the low end of reimbursement are they going to fill their schedules and they're going to try to see 40, 50 patients a day to make the same amount of money that maybe another provider down the street only has to see 20 patients. So physician burnout, it leads to almost a 30% plus increased risk of medical error. Um, those patients then are deprived of time, right? 10 to 15 minutes to discuss your entire medical history, get a physical exam and a treatment plan. I don't think so. Let's talk about screening, preventive screening. That's a conversation that I hear, you know, we're very focused on mammograms, on, on pap smears. What about other screening? And I know we're going, we're sort of going off topic, but it, but it's all related. I mean, are there certain areas where you're saying, you know, if this was recorded and we had more cervical cancer screening um, and, and, you know, pretty soon we're going to be able to have cervical cancer screening uh, reliably at home. But are there certain areas where you're saying, you know what, we could move this out of a, a provider setting and really increase outcomes, decrease costs and have an impact. And again, Free up time. If you're not doing cervical cancer screenings, they're at home. You have more. No, time there's to focus so many things. Areas. I'm seeing. You know, being part of this um, cohort of innovators and entrepreneurs. Uh, you know, I get to hear about the latest, greatest femtech, and I'm so excited about the things that are going on. Um, whether it's you know pelvic floor physical therapy options, you know, um, that are online or a smart vibrator that can actually teach a woman about why she may be having sexual issues. Um, it's amazing to me. And some of this at-home testing that can help women monitor whether it's sugar levels, whether it's their hormone levels, their, uh, you know, the rings, we've seen them that take care of, uh, you know, measure so much data. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of room to combine these technologies with um, in-person visits at a less frequent cadence and um, move to preventative medicine. I think that's been the problem for a long time in the United States is we chase disease. You know, there's a test that we offer um, at HerMD, it's called Gallery, and it tests uh, for over 50 types of cancers. And over half of those cancers it tests for there is actually no screening tool um, for in this country. The problem with gallery, though, is that it's exceedingly costly. It's uh, over $800 per patient. Um, you know, patients can use FSA and HSA. Um, but, you know, I wish that those kinds of things were accessible across the board or at least covered. Because wouldn't an insurance company rather pay for that than pay for 
you know, repeated treatments of a stage three cancer, um, wouldn't they want to see their subscribers live and not get that cancer? Um, Because you can change that person's life forever in a very positive manner. If you're able to find a cancer at stage one for cancers that are typically found stage three and stage four. And so these are the kinds of things that I would like to see become more accessible and affordable. And also for physicians, sometimes we're a little nervous um, to adopt change or new technology, but for, for physicians to have an open mind and understand that they're not being replaced by technology, but it's going to enhance their ability to diagnose, uh, treat, and intervene for their patients. The health system is part of that conversation. Um, and and you see you know, certain health systems that are really leaning into innovation, really leaning into women's health, and seeing that there's such opportunity, there's such white space uh, for improvement. What do you, how do you think it's going to impact women's health over the next six months, year? Is it is it going to bring more attention to the causes? Is it going to, in certain ways, like COVID did, show, wow, you know, there's some real gaps in care, hospitals need more reimbursement. Is it going to shine a light on the gaps that are existing and help improve the conversation and the action and the care that women You know, if I wasn't in the middle of fundraising, I'd tell you, I wish I had a crystal ball, but I've seen this as a rally cry for um, investors. Uh, you know, a lot of them made the decision last year or in the years preceding that they were finally going to make an investment in the female healthcare space. Um, this has brought a lot of the investors to the table, even in this market. Mm-hmm. We're kind of on the fence about women's healthcare. Is it a niche? You know, is it just something transient? Um, but it's been a rally cry almost. And what you're hearing from them, um, even if they're male, is they have a sister, or they have a daughter, you know, they have a wife, and they just can't bear to think that they're not helping. And so I think, yes, it's going to shine an even bigger spotlight on this women's healthcare revolution that is finally, finally here. So I am really, really excited to be at the table with fellow um, entrepreneurs and innovators and people like you, Delphine, who are at the forefront. Everyone has their areas of expertise. Um, I'm so excited to be talking to all these investors who are just as excited now as the um, founders about women's healthcare. And so I don't think we're going to take this lying down. I think we're going to see real change. And I think this is going to amplify the voices even more of those change makers. So me, I would like to thank you. This was a phenomenal podcast. And um, I know we're going to continue the rallying cry because this is really our time. It is everybody's time because women's health is everyone's health. It is family's health. It is men's health. Um, And we're all in this together. And as you say, this is a women's health revolution and it is just the beginning. And I'm also very excited for what's to come. So again, thank you. And thank you to AHLA. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to AHLA Speaking of Health Law wherever you get your podcasts. To learn more about AHLA and the educational resources available to the health law community, visit AmericanHealthLaw.org.